0: Thank our sponsors, She Funny, a platform created to encourage funny women of color to be empowered in their funny by offering various resources and online visibility, and also our friends here at Cards Against Humanity for their hospitality and donated studio space. I appreciate you both.
1: If you're married to a guy who's that famous and that rich, do you she, just have to accept infidelity no matter what? Just, just know that women will be throwing their pussies at him, and men are fucking weak. Men are weak. I can see that. So you're famous, but listen my post my postal my postman, my local postman gets women just because he's a postman and he's delivering mail to people's houses and he gets bitches so <laughs> if my local postman can can have sex with Four or five women outside of his marriage. That's a, hey, 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 Mr. Exactly. Postman. Well, there you go. Kevin Hart, of course. Kevin Hart, Jay Z, all
0: those guys. It's going to happen. And then they come out with these apologies. Yeah. Jay Z and his, his last album was, it was a whole like, apology. A whole apology. Like, please don't leave me, Beyonce. You're the best. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, he had to do that because Beyonce is fucking Beyonce. Beyonce,
0: yeah. You know? Oh my god, guys! Thanks for tuning in. This is a special edition. Kelly talks talking with Gina Yashier. Don't even fuck up my <laughs>
1: name, Kelly. You've been working. Yashere, Yashere,
0: Yashere. I always want to say Yashier, but it's yeah, not that. It's Yashere. She was gonna stab me in the face. You should have saw her brow come down. Like it was. It got scary for a minute there, and I don't get scared for shit. I'm from Chicago, but she scared me for for two seconds because I don't know how UK blacks kill. I don't know how they kill. Yeah. I'm unexpected.
1: Yeah, it's we smile at you, but you're dead before you even realize. Damn, the smile will no. <laughs> come. So I might be dead right now. This yep. podcast
0: might be happening yep. in another yep.
1: <laughs> realm I'm a, of existence. I'm another level of existence. <laughs>
0: hey, y'all. This is a special edition. I got Gina in my hotel room right now, uh, and we are about to do a podcast on Hollywood, on life. black women in Hollywood, and life. Just in general, um, it. Came out of nowhere. It was like, let's do this. I'm gonna be out of town with her. I'm open. I'm featuring for her right now at the Stardome, Alabama, 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 and it's been a grand time. And this is our last day. And I honestly can admit that I am going to miss um, her. I'm gonna miss. This, Thank you. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna miss, miss this, you. It's this been experience. Great. Yeah. Traveling
1: with a healthy, mindful comedian. Oh, it makes such a refreshing change.
0: Yeah, we've been meditating. We've yep. been eating smoothies or drinking smoothies rather. Making smoothies. Yeah, making in the hotel room. Yeah, making smoothies with my shitty ass Hamilton Beach blender that keeps smelling like plastic burning. But hey, it's, it's, it's chunking up them smoothies for us, so yep. it works. Go wrong. So, than nothing. so Gina, for people
1: that do not know who you are, uh, can you give them a little intro? Where are you from? Uh, I'm Gina Yashere. I am a comedian from London, England. I've been living out in America for a little while now. Um, You may have seen me on things like... I was on Deaf Comedy Jam the last season back in 2008. Um, I've got an hour special on Showtime. Another hour special currently playing on Stars. Another hour special on CISO, which is going to be defunct soon, but whatever. That's three hours of material. Yeah, three hour specials. Um, I'm currently... Uh, a British correspondent on The Daily Show. So, if you catch, if you tune in on the right day, <laughs> you <laughs> might just catch me. Uh, so, uh, I'm on that. Uh, I'm all over the place. I'm always on bits and pieces. I'm on Comedy Knockout, on True TV all the time. And I'm constantly working. That's what I do.
0: Yes, she's constantly working. We actually, this this trip came about because she was in Chicago. And after my show at Second City, I decided, you know what, I'm two doors down. Let me go on over here to Zany's and say hi to Gina. Plus, I saw her riding her bike past me on my way into rehearsal, which was so weird because I didn't expect her to be on a bike. And it wasn't even like a a divvy. It was like a regular ass bike. I was like, did you?
1: Bring a bike with you? No, <laughs> yeah, the hotel was giving out free bikes. And I was like, great, I'd have to pay for one of your bikes. I'd just take a hotel bike and ride all over town. It was great. That's when you stay in nice
0: hotels. They give yeah. you a bike. Yeah. So she uh, rolled right past me. And I'm like, Gina. And she's like, oh, my God, Kelly. <laughs> and so we chatted for a second. I came over to Zaney's. We were talking. And we were sitting up in the green room. And she said she'd love for me to feature for her. And I was like, oh, my God, yes, I would love to go with you anywhere you take me. And here we are. In Birmingham, Alabama. Alabama. We went and saw the 16th Street Church yesterday, 16th Street Baptist Church that yeah. was closed, so we yeah. saw the outside of yeah. it. Um, and then we went to the Civil Rights Museum right across the street, which was a super powerful yeah. experience as well. Um, and Gina's super famous and she got recognized and people stopped us and we was super like taking famous. pictures.
1: I got recognized four times maximum this weekend. What are you talking about? Four times maximum. That's not super famous. That's ooh, you're that girl from oh yeah, you're the girl with the funny accent. You're the girl. Yeah. yeah. That is how most people recognize. Yeah. they was, like your voice. I know yeah. your voice. My voice is very distinctive. I cannot commit any kind of crime.
0: <laughs> They'd be like, I know exactly yeah. who exactly
1: it was. it was the black girl of T V, the English one.
0: So, what ultimately, what's your goal? What's your goal in, in Hollywood ultimately?
1: My goal in Hollywood, I, I haven't got a goal for Hollywood. My goal is to just make a nice living. When I say nice living, I mean three to four million dollars a year. Is that a nice living? That's a great living. A I great think living a nice living, living is like 70,000. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, well, I already make that. But doing a stand up, just doing my stand up, I have no. Uh, dreams to be a movie star i do not have the movie star looks i don't i am not the movie star age i'm way past because hollywood's all about youth and looks now so if, it, if that was the case i don't stand a chance unless i'm the funny ugly next door neighbor which i can do i don't mind but um <laughs> my no I, I love i've done acting i enjoy it and all the other bits of tv stuff i uh, i enjoy it as well but my main thing is my stand-up i love doing stand-up i love playing audiences and my dream is just to play big theatres and stadiums for the rest of my life. I want to do what Joan Rivers did, even though she hated doing it. I want to be a black Joan Rivers, just k- killing right up until my mid 80s. She hated it? Uh, yeah, if you watch the documentary uh, that she did, which was an amazing documentary looking into her life, uh, she says, I'm an actor. I'm not a stand-up comedian, oh. I'm really an actor, and I was like, bitch, why are you denigrating, you're so powerful, you're one of the, the best stand-ups, I look up to you, and you're denigrating the, the, the thing that made you famous, that's made you who you are, that you're so amazing at, because you want to be respected as an actor, so I was very upset by that, but the, the documentary is amazing.
0: Nice. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. So what led you into stand-up? Like, how did you you even get started into this? Because what was your previous profession before doing
1: stand-up? I was an engineer. I used to build and repair elevators. I worked for Otis. 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 That's the biggest elevator company in the world. Or it was. I don't know if it still is. But it was the biggest elevator company in the world. I worked for them for a few years. Before that, I worked for a company called British Telecom, which is kind of similar to... Who does all your landlines in America? Not that you have many of them anymore. But, AT&T. Right. So I worked for a company equivalent to AT&T, uh, repairing and installing landlines when landlines were the big thing. Uh, so I did that. I was an engineer. I studied electrical electronics engineering. That's what I was. But how I left that, I was working for Otis. Uh, it was a very racist and sexist environment, but I stuck it out for four years. And then I was their poster girl because I was the first woman engineer that the company had ever had in their 100-year history in the UK. So I was on all their brochures. Oh, look, we've got this little black girl. Ooh. You was on their brochures? Oh, I was on their brochures every time. Yeah, all over the gap. So they used me a lot, but I wasn't getting the opportunities at work. I should have been, but they loved me as their poster girl. So in the mid-90s, sort of 90s, they were making people redundant. And I was like, you know what? I'm done with this job. Uh, I'm going to leave this job. They're making people redundant because the building industry went through a bit of a slump. It happened to happen in the in one of the hottest summers we'd had in england which is not very often so i was like uh, it's summer the sun is shining i'm gonna take this redundancy get some money enjoy my summer off and then when the weather starts to get cold i'll start looking for another job so that was my plan so i i went into the office because i knew they wouldn't want to make me redundant because i was their poster girl and i went in i was like listen you've done some shady shit while i've been working for you and i could take you to a tribunal and take you to court if you don't want that just pay me off, give me my redundancy, let me go in peace. And they were like, okay. So they let me go, I had the summer off. And in that time, people were always telling me I was funny from when I was a kid, but my mum is very academic, she wasn't, you know, she was like, you're gonna be a doctor. You're going to be a doctor actor no not acting you can what is act this accent that you're doing Nigerian my parents are Nigerian so my mum is like you're, you, you're not going to be an actor you're going to be a doctor you can act like a doctor and you become a doctor <laughs> so that was her whole attitude so I was not eleven I used to be a really good sprinter 100 metres 200 metres and my school wanted to take that further and they were, my mum was like so you'll be taking her out of lessons to do athletics nope so that was the end of my athletics career at 12, 13 years old boom done um So yeah, in the meantime while I was enjoying my summer off, I used to do voluntary work for various organisations and one day they were doing like a a talent show. They were like, we need poets and singers and dancers to do this talent show, like a a fundraiser and uh, me and a couple of friends were always messing around doing our mum's accents because we're all African so I wrote what I thought was a play. I wrote a short play for us to perform. We performed the play and people pissed themselves laughing throughout the play. Nice. So it turned out to be comedy. And I was like, ah, that's what comedy is. And the other two girls weren't really interested in continuing. And we took that one play and won about seven talent competitions with that one play stroke sketch. And I had writer's block. I was like, I had. I, this is the one thing I've written. I ain't got no other plays in it. This me. is it. This is all of mine. My- yeah. <laughs> so the other two. And then there was one talent competition that we got through to the semifinals finals And the other two girls didn't turn up. One of them had been burglarized or something. So the other girl went to her friend's house to help her out. So I was at the semi-final on my own. And the other two girls didn't turn up. So I got up on stage and just talked shit for 10 minutes. Nice. And people were like, oh, you're hilarious. And I got us through to the finals. Wow. And then afterwards I started thinking, hmm, I could do this by myself. And the other girls went back to their regular lives. And I just carried on doing open mics and things like that. And, yeah, and just, how old were you when you did that? I was like 22, 23, yeah. So, yeah, 20 years ago. So, that was the end of that. And I just continued, and I just never went back to work. It's been 20 years. I'm still doing it.
0: That is so dope. And you've been in
1: the United States for how long? Uh, 10 years. I came out in 2007 for Last Comic Standing. And it's always been my dream to live in America, like, since I was a kid. I used to say to my mom as a child, you could have gone anywhere in the world. Why didn't you go to Miami? I could have be an American kid. Because all your TV shows and movies showed American kids with cool bikes, living in beautiful houses, cycling, solving crimes on their bikes, surfing, you know. <laughs> solving crimes on their bikes. Yeah, they bike. did that. There was a TV show I used to watch as kids. It was a bunch of kids riding around on bikes, catching criminals. And I'd be like, wow, in America, kids are allowed to be detectives. Why did you come to England? I could have been in Miami surfing and solving crimes on my bicycle. So it's been a dream since I was six. So apparently kids aren't doing that in the UK. No. We, our life is nowhere near as fun as what yours looks like on TV. Obviously, really? I know the truth now. But Right. <clears throat> obviously, I was six watching TV shows and thinking, wow, that's American life, you know? So, yeah, basically, I, it's been a dream. Even when I worked as an engineer for Otis, Otis is an American company. Hmm. And my dream was to work for Otis for a few years and at some point get transferred TG. to America as an elevator engineer in America. It's been my dream all my life. I've been working towards living in the States my entire life. So you've been living your dream for 10 years. Oh, man, it's my dream. I'm living, every time I wake up in the morning, we used to come, I live in New York now, I used to go to New York on vacation and save all year, me and my friends, me and six of my friends would save all year at work for this one three-week vacation or four-week vacation in New York. And we'd come out here and we'd buy Because your clothes were amazing. You know, it was in the 90s when hip-hop was like... All the big puffer coats with the fur collars, the Reebok pumps, all that. <laughs> we'd come out here with empty suitcases and spend our whole savings that we've been saving up for the year in New York buying Dookie chains. I've still got the name ring. Remember? Oh, that my... Yes, I ring? do remember the yeah, name ring. Yeah, because they were out in the 90s. The name ring, I've still got that from 1993 when I bought it out here in New York. So, yeah, we'd come out here with empty suitcases, buy all this New York stuff, and then we'd go back to London, stunting. That's so
0: funny. I used to work for TSA, and I know the Africans that would come with these empty suitcases, yep. and they would go back, and them suitcases would be so damn heavy yep. with yep. so much stuff. And I'm like, yep. why are you taking all this stuff back to Africa? Yeah. But I get it.
1: Oh, man. All the fashion. I think they would sell it, too, though, because they would have like multiple of the same thing. Oh, yeah. The Africans coming from Nigeria and that. Yeah, they'll, they'll sell that. Me, we were like 18, 19, 20. We were getting that to wear that to the nightclubs. <laughs> so people go, oh, my God, we get them Reebok punks. Oh, yeah, I got them in the America, you know, what I mean? that was, America. Yeah, that was a big thing. We get that puffer coat. Psst, got that in America, man. Can't get that shit here. You know, it was that was the thing. It's we, so lot though. We played so cool, be staying outside the club. And them times I had blonde, funky dreads. It was in the soul to soul days and the running man days. Oh yeah, I was I was the shit back then.
0: It's so funny how you say running man.
1: Oh yeah, the running man. That's what the. The running man that was days. Dance man, that was. Oh, I was. I used to be in British hip-hop videos, dancing in the background. I did all that stuff. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I used to take Yo MTV Raps on video cassette and watch them over and over again and learn the dance moves. Oh, yeah. Did y'all ever
0: have the um, the box
1: where Um, you had to
0: pay for videos that
1: you wanted to see? No, we didn't have that. You didn't have that? No, we had Sky Satellite. And we get, not all of your American TV shows, but we got some. And I remember Yo! MTV raps okay. with Dr. Dre, not the Dr. Dre, the other Dr. Dre. Do you remember the other Dr. Dre? No. There's two Dr. Dre's. There's a chubby guy that used to, it used to be Ed Lover. and Oh, yeah, you're a lot younger than me. Ed Lover. I do remember Ed Lover, though. What, Ed Lover and Dr. Dre? The fat guy that was hosting with him. There was two of them. There was a fat guy. And his name was Dr. Dre. But not the Dr. Dre. Not the Dr. Dre. So when the Dr. Dre came out, and I was like, who the fuck is this? This isn't dr-, dr. Dre <laughs> from Yo MTV Raps. What is this bullshit? That's so
0: funny. Yeah. So you've had quite a, a, a life of living up to coming to America. Oh, yeah. Now, what has been one of your biggest struggles being here in America?
1: Uh, oh, biggest struggles was making money when I first got here. So, when I first came to America, I went to Los Angeles. Now, bearing in mind, I'm coming from England as a comedian, and in England, I'm pretty famous. Like, in England, I can sell out two, three, four thousand seat theatres. I can tour, do tours, and sell theatres. So, I've got a name. I've done a lot of TV in England. I've never had my own proper show, maybe once, but like, I've been on lots and lots of TV shows. So, in England, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that.
0: Not to cut you off, define proper. What do you mean proper? Because you use proper, like you'd be like proper this, proper that. What is that exact
1: what is that how does that translate into an American word? When did I use it? So I've used proper in a couple of different there's a couple of different meanings to proper. Okay, give me two. <laughs> okay, so when you go that's proper, that means that's really good. That's okay. proper. When you go, I'm proper hungry, that means super hungry. Uh, when I said I got I've had my own TV show, not proper. Because uh, a channel was doing an experiment where they were doing a talk show format, but using different hosts to host for two weeks at a time. So I didn't have my own show, but I hosted my own show as part of this experiment for two weeks. So that's why I say not proper. I never had my own show, like commissioned and my own season of shows, but I did host my own show several times. Interesting. I've
0: heard you use it all weekend. So I was not like, proper. What, this proper word. What is oh, yeah? this proper? <laughs> <laughs> the English, mate. That's funny.
1: Okay. Yes, I'm coming from England as a pretty well-known comic. Mm-hmm. And in England, the, the way comedy's done is every comedian was making good money, regardless of whether you had TV credits. The comedy clubs, people go to the comedy clubs based on the reputation of the comedy club. It's, they're not going to see any particular comedian. They go, oh, I'm going to this comedy club because it's a good comedy club. So I'm going there. I don't know who's going to be on, but I know it's a good comedy club, so I know I'm going to get a good night of comedy. So every comedian worked. All the comedians in the comedy clubs got the same money. So you can work every comedy club in the country, everybody got the same money, and most comedians made 50, 60, 70 grand a year just travelling around doing comedy clubs. Nice. When you got to a level where people started to come and see you, so I started to get a lot of TV stuff, and then I'd notice in a comedy club, i go, I know, oh, all them black people, this is a white kind of mainstream comedy club. All those black people ain't coming for this comedy club. They're coming because I'm on. When I started to notice that I was pulling in crowds, then you transcend the comedy clubs. Then you move on to your own venues. You start doing art centres. You start doing theatres. So you leave the comedy club for the rest of the comedians that, that are not Get, got those TV credits or just... So we call them jobbing comedians in England. Jobbing, as in you work working in comedians' a job, you're a jobbing comic, you travel around in the comedy clubs, and then you become sort of, not a celebrity comic, but you become a name comic where people come out to see you. So I assumed coming to America, that'd be the same format. So I was like, that well... That you just
0: work the comedy clubs and be yeah, a
1: jobbing comedian. Again. Exactly. So I thought, when I come to America... I came over to do Last Comic Standing. I had that one little TV credit when I moved to America. I thought, well, obviously I'm famous in England, but I'm not here. So I'm willing to start again from scratch. I'll be just a jobbing comic, just going around the comedy clubs, earning a couple of hundred here, a couple of hundred (laughs) there. That meant getting paid, nothing. (laughs) I'm getting paid. Then I go to LA. (laughs) I move lock, stock and barrel to LA. Land there. I find somewhere to live. I go to the first comedy club, the improv, and I go, hey... I'm Jeannie Ashway, I'm from England. I've got a bit of a name for myself. Here's my website. You can see everything I've done. I'd like to work the comedy clubs, you know. And they're like, "Yeah, it doesn't work that way here. We don't give a shit how funny you are. Are you gonna sell tickets? No, then we can't book you." And, like, and that was like, "Oh my god, how am I gonna? How, how am I, I gonna eat?" And so, and yeah. that's when you became a, a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck it out! It was, it, <laughs> that was an, an eye opener for me. So yeah, I spent, I lived in LA for the first seven years I was in America, and uh, I I never made any money there. You'd LA is a showcase town. The comedy clubs don't pay. Which it's I, very showcase. Well, yeah. I think it's a travesty. Yeah. Because everybody else is getting paid. The security is getting paid. The bar staff are getting paid. The the people who cook food are getting paid. Everybody's getting paid except the reason why the people are turning up at the place. They're not getting paid. You're doing sets at the improv and getting a check for $8.75 in a check. Yeah. So. You you don't even get it that night, yeah. Yeah, you have to go back two weeks later. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. Uh, So, yeah, LA's like, oh, yeah, but we're doing you a favor by letting you go on our stages because this is Hollywood and you could be seen by Steven Spielberg and cast in a movie or whatever. So, that's the way they justify not paying comedians. And I'm like, this is bullshit. I'm a comedian. This is what I do for a living. This is not a stepping stone to something else. This is what I do. So I was constantly leaving LA, flying to a different place, going back to London. I'd call my manager in London and go, "Uh, I'm broke. I'm coming back for three weeks. And I'd go back and I'd call it the bank raid. I'd go in, I'd book a load of theatre shows, book a load of comedy clubs, go get that money, and then come back to LA and live off it. And then when that money ran out, I'd go back. And that's what I was doing for seven years. Wow. uh, While trying to get booked at American comedy clubs, which was a struggle. Because they just if you're not selling tickets, you're not famous, you're not going to get booked. And if you're a black woman, you're a woman and a black woman, they're taking even less of a risk on you as a headliner. So for the first few years, I struggled. Uh, So how
0: did you break that, though? What did you end up doing that, was it just the consistency of trying to get into clubs? Or did you
1: do something specific that changed that for you? I just kept hitting those comedy clubs and just wiping the floor with all the other comedians and eventually people start to notice you because they're like who is this girl that we've never heard of just ripping up these stages and making our comedians look silly do you know what I mean so I I had a lot of that going so then from there I got things like The Tonight Show I got Def Comedy Jam I got The Tonight Show Um, and just little crumbs of things just come so I've built a consistent sort of a body of work just appearing on little TV shows and my name's just been getting out there. But it's not got to that point where I've gone boom and it's all blown. But little bits and pieces over the years. But I'm still not getting booked at that many comedy clubs. It's right. still hard to sell a ticket. But I'm getting more and more bits and pieces. And I've just been slowly building. And then eventually I moved to New York because I was getting back to New York. I was getting to New York every year when I was in L.A., and New York, the New York comedy scene is more like the British comedy scene. Okay. Where comedians are running around doing spots and everybody's getting paid the same money. And so you can make, you know, if you're not on the road, but you're in at the best clubs in New York, you can still make good money in the week when you're in New York. Whereas in LA, I was making no money. Average, make, what can you make a week in New York? And like, I don't even work every day mm-hmm. in New York. I like to keep my week free and I only work Friday and Saturday. But just Friday and Saturday, I can make a grand 1,200 just doing spots. Nice. In the, in the good clubs, the best clubs, obviously, for a lot of spots in New York City. So that's a nice bit of money for when you're just chilling at home and not on the road. Mm-hmm. Whereas in LA, I only made money when I was on the road. And when I came back, I spent that money to live. Whereas in New York... The money I make on the road, I've been able to save it because I read this book called The uh, Richest Man in Babylon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read right? that. So I've been saving since I moved to New York and I'm able to save because I'm actually making money when I'm in New York. That I've been saving between 10 and 20 percent of my income nice. without fail for the last nearly four years now. You Which know? can fund your trips to Thailand every year. Yeah, funding my trips and, yeah. and funding my next real estate person. So now
0: how did you get into that? Because uh, you do go uh not to divert, but you do go to Thailand every year yes. and you spend a week detoxing, but then yeah. you also do a run yeah. in Asia. How did you start that? How did you start like how did you get into those type of clubs there?
1: Okay, so a lot uh, there's a huge expat community in all around the world.
0: Expat, well, define that for people that don't know what that's
1: expatriate. So let's say uh, someone from England, someone from Canada, someone from the US, someone from um, Australia who's working for let's say you're working for an international bank and they send you to Hong Kong to work. so you're living and working in Hong Kong in another country. so you're British, but you're living in Hong Kong. You're Canadian but you're living in Malaysia. you're you know you're Australian but you're living in you know okay. Singapore. So working for all these international these are expats. That's what we call expatriates. people who have emigrated to other countries living and working, yeah. Okay. In America, they call them immigrants if you're black or brown. But if you're white, you're expats. <laughs> so they're living all over the world, and uh, there's a few of those who've been starved of their entertainment from back home. So a lot of them have started comedy nights, because, you know, you're British, you're used to going to comedy clubs every weekend, and you're now living in, whatever, Malaysia, and there's nothing like that. You set up a club. Mm-hmm. So that's what's happened. There was an Australian guy called Jonathan Atherton, who's a world traveller. He set up his own comedy club in Malaysia because he was living there for a while. He set up a comedy scene in Singapore because he was living there and he hooked up with guys. And that's basically what it is. And because most of it has been set up by comedians or Brits and Americans who've lived in England at some point, then they tend to book a lot of comedians from England. So I've been going to Asia for at least the last, 15 years to do shows. Dubai, nice. all over. Because it's set up from by British people living in different countries who've gone, I'm going to set up my own thing here and then fly over the British comics that I know. So that's where that started. That's dope. Uh, Thailand, um, and then you just make relationships. As you do one show, they go, oh yeah, I've got a friend in Borneo who set up a club. I'll hook you up with him and then maybe we can, and then you just meet all these people. And then I just keep all their contacts. So whenever I go back, I go, I'm coming out to Thailand I'm going to be there January, February. Give me what you got. And then they all come and go, we want you for this weekend. And then it just turns into a tour of Asia. How important is, are these relationships you're talking about? How How important
0: are they? Because like, I know a lot of comics that just, like, I'm going to just do my thing. I'm going to just get out here on this scene and work, work, work. But they're kind of antisocial. You know what I mean? They don't yeah. know how to deal with other performers.
1: So how important are those relationships to your success? Yeah, I think it's good to be. Look, I'm, I'm a person that I, I'm open to everybody everybody's my friend until you do something fucked up so I'm very open some people think I'm too open but I feel like I'm a positive person and I like to exude positivity and if people give it back that's great so I get on with most comedians and most promoters because I'm not hard to work with I turn up I, you know, I don't party too hard, so I don't get drunk and miss interviews and miss radio and miss shows. You don't run up bar tabs. I don't run up bar tabs. I'm quite a clean, I'm a clean living comic. So I'm easy to work with and I'm fun to be around, even though I don't hang out and drink and party. But I'm good conversation. I come, I, I'm professional, I do my job and I'm professional. So people like that. And so people like to work with me because I'm easy uh, to get on with. So that, it's always important to be professional and be nice, you know. And I'm always like that with everybody I meet.
0: Okay, so you've started touring. Well, you've been touring, not started. Mm. So for 15 years, you've been going to Asia and all these different places doing stand-up. And yeah. then you love your scene in New York. Yeah. But how does, even with all of that work, right? how is it still challenging for you as a black female comedian to really show your worth out here or to really get those opportunities that you feel like you deserve?
1: Because, look, Comedy at the moment is run by white males. Ninety percent of it is white males, and so they tend to book other white males. And when they're booking women, they're looking at it from a perspective of: Would young white guys want to fuck that woman? Now, then, and so that's why you've got this whole crut, this crew of pretty or very sexual white female comedians doing really well. Um, I think things are gonna get better, better now since Girl Trip and Tiffany Haddish and all that. So people are starting to see, oh, black women, we can be funny and we can make money. It's all about money at the end of the day. You right? Know? It's all about money. If they can make money from you, then they will. They'll, will, you know, look. Kings of Comedy is a prime example of that. You know, uh, Steve Harvey, D L Hewley, all those guys. They were just. They were what you call hood famous. They were famous in the black community only, right. and they were like, "Well, then we're going to go on this tour." They went on this tour, selling out mad arenas. Spike Lee shot it, and then it came to the attention of white executives, and they're like, "Oh shit, this—that's a lot of money that we could be capitalizing on," and hence the, the all of them are blown up individually as a uh, as a result of that. So, I think girl trip, girls trip, or girl trip. I guess, girls yeah, trip. Yeah, what girls is. trip. Will probably helped to do that For black women in the industry Where people go Oh Black women can make money Up until this point We were seen as niche We were seen as weird We were seen as Oh yeah We were kind of Disregarded But don't you think Other shows are doing that too Like Insecure Oh Insecure is another show Again That's blowing up black women and it's a fantastic thing. But these are all, you know, you've had black female shows before, but then they've always been thrown to the wayside and then nothing has replaced them. But I think right now, it's becoming a perfect storm with the film, with Insecure. It's a perfect storm for black women right now, so it could help. But then again, also Insecure, they're all very young and slim and pretty. You know what I mean? <laughs> you've got that. You haven't got, you haven't got the equivalent for just regular, older... Thirty-five and up black women right now. They're, you know, it's all very. I mean, girls trip. I just want to say
0: forty and up. I don't want yeah. to be in that
1: category. Yeah, <laughs> right. let's do forty and up. I'm just kidding. Up.
0: There's
1: nothing for forty <laughs> and up. Okay, you don't want to be in that category. I for don't me, really, then, I'm No, but 40. you
0: know what? Though I mean, I haven't gotten huge opportunities either. But I'm. I think that a lot of that has been just my own way of thinking. Because you know, sometimes we get stuck in the well why not me well what if why am I not getting these and we kind of get stuck in a loophole of negative thinking and that can pull you down too that can limit your opportunities that definitely
1: can but you know you can't help that because you see what's happening in the outside world you know like I'm for black female comedian I'm pretty successful yeah you are I'm pretty successful but when I look at my white male counterparts And I I, I know you're not supposed to compare yourself to I was going to say, is that an attitude of comparison, though? Yes, it is an attitude of comparison. But you can't help yourself. We're human. When I see people who've opened for me, Uh then blowing up and becoming multi-millionaires, you have to look and go, hold on a minute, you were opening for me. How did this happen? And the only difference between me and you is you're white male and have a penis. Yeah. You know, I'm as funny if not funnier than you are. So you can't help yourself as a human. To look at other people who you consider on your level and go, well, how are they? But yeah, so uh, I've taken a lot of time working on myself to stop doing that. I mean, sometimes I fall into a rabbit hole of negativity, but for the most part, I've been a lot better. You don't
0: think it's anything they're doing on the back end that that, um, contributes to that? No, not always. No.
1: No? No. People get picked and they get groomed. You know, uh, you see white guys... There's certain comedians who get opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. They they try one show and they go, oh, that failed. Let's try him in this. Oh, that failed. Let's try him. Like John, John Mulaney is an example. He's had so many opportunities and they keep going, Ah, oh, the sitcom didn't work. Let's try him in this. Let's try him in that. These are the ch- the chances that white male comics get. The opportunities over. No, it's almost yeah. like if a black person fails, it's
0: that yeah. one. We've, that's all, it. Failed. We've all failed. We've all failed. If a
1: black comic fails or a black sitcom fails... We've all failed. So that's when, when Insecure came out, I was praying. I was like, please be successful. I love that show. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's fantastic, amazing show. It's a fantastic show. Very well and, written. Uh, you know,
0: very well, well written Beauty and, and, Beauty and should Beauty. absolutely cast me yeah. if you ever
1: listen to this podcast. as yeah, a right. an angry, fat, lesbian <laughs> uh, neighbor, please cast me. And I know Yvonne Orji very well. We reached, I was in L.A. at the same time as so her. We're both same Nigerian background. And we even actually started writing. Issa? No, Yvonne Uji who plays Molly.
0: Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. She is African. Uh, yeah, she's Nigerian.
1: Yeah. So we both uh, have the same background, uh, same experiences. And uh, before she blew up as Molly, uh, we started, we'd started writing a sitcom together. Based on two sisters, one brought in, brought up, brought up in England, one brought up in America, who didn't know of each other's existence. Oh, that would have been dope. Yeah. So we started writing, it, but then I moved to New York, and then that kind of sort of fell off. And then she got insecure, so I'll probably never be able to get her on the phone again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I know that, in addition to just the struggles of being a black woman, and then I would think that being British helps you, though, in America. Aside from just being a black woman, because I feel like that me being a black woman, I get I get I kind of get put into the category of this kind of black woman. That's it. Versus you, you show up with that accent and then that changes.
1: Yes. And no. Yes. When people see me and they go, oh, she's British, she's different. She's not quite, you know, because, you know. When you look at my picture, you go, oh, urban, black female comic, you're urban. You're going to talk about your pussy for seven hours. It's going to be very sexual. It's going to be very raw. That's immediately what they expect. Mm -hmm. And even when I'm trying to get bookings at comedy clubs, I know that.
0: But don't white comics talk, white female comics talk about the pussy? But
1: they're white women. They can do that. It's it's so edgy. It's, you know, it's so out there. It's so avant-garde. When white women talk about their vaginas, but when black women, oh, it's just crude, you know. It all goes back to that whole image of black women being overly sexual and immoral. Do you know what I mean? It's just the old time thinking that's still happening today. So that's the double standard that there is in the industry. You know that white female comedians will do that stuff and it's like, oh my god, it's just so. Oh my god, this she's so edgy. And it's like, fuck off. Black people have been talking about that shit forever. But, yeah, so as a black female comedian, when you're trying to get booked, that's what they look at. Even when I've gone and done comedy clubs, which irritates me the most, and uh, I'm like, so what press and what radio are are you getting me? They're always marketing me to just the urban audiences. And I'm like, stop doing that shit. I'm just a comedian. Right. Uh, Market me to all audiences, including urban. I'm funny to everybody. But they go, we couldn't get any radio for you because, you know, the urban... And I'm like... Well, what about fucking Tom and Jack at 106.7? Put me on them, you know? Yeah. So I hate the whole thing of being put into a box because of the way I look. as a British And I feel
0: like, I don't mean to cut you off, right? but I feel like your audience is... Um, I've seen you at both. I've seen you here in Alabama, where the audience is ninety percent black. Yeah. Just because I think Alabama, I mean Birmingham, is ninety percent black, so okay. that's going to be your turnout. But I've yeah. also seen you at Zanies in the middle of Old Town, where there's a bunch of old fucking white people, and there's a bunch of white people. Period. The audience is eighty-five percent, ninety percent white, and you've killed at both. Like your 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 comedy content is not tailored to a specific genre of people.
1: Exactly. I've always marketed my comedy as world worldly. I talk about myself. I'm talking about experiences as a human, not as just a black human or just a white human or just a female human or just a lesbian human. I talk about all of that stuff, but it's a it's from a worldly view because I've traveled so much as a comedian and I've performed for audiences all over the world. You have to know how to adapt. So yeah, that's my difficulty. Yeah, the British thing helps in a way because it gets me noticed more because I stand out. They go, oh, shit, you're different. But then they go, ah, but we've never seen one like you before, so we don't know what to do with you. So I feel like I'm always opening the doors, being the first of everything. But then I get left holding the door while everybody else comes through. And that's happened to me in England, and that's why I ended up leaving. It just happened, and I feel like it's That's happening. happened to you in real life where you've held the door and people <laughs> Yeah, <were. laughs> it happens to me in real life and... In comedy. So I feel like I'm feel like i always the the trailblazer. So I'm the first sort of black female comic that's come to America working from a bottom-up, you know, deaf Comedy Jam Tonight Show, doing all that stuff. But I know I'm in my 40s now. So I'm, they'll, they'll always be looking at me and go, oh, that, so the black British thing does work. Let's find a younger, prettier version of her. And that's basically what happens to me all the time.
0: I can see that being... Um frustrating for yeah. sure to have to deal with but I it's also a beautiful thing that you're opening doors for comedians to have that opportunity like you're being that 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 comedian that's oh. like oh my god had oh, yeah. Gina not come had Gina not been bold enough to go out
1: here and do these things then we wouldn't have these opportunities which is great I love the fact that I'm always the first to open the doors but I want to get some sex success off the back of it too I don't want to be left opening the door and then seeing all these youngsters come through and uh, sort of uh, gain from all the hard work I put in, and then I've been let and I'm left behind. That's yeah. what is my fear, which t- has happened to me in the past in England. I've done that. I've been a trailblazer. I, you know, I was the first sort of Black British Nigerian comedian doing mainstream comedy on television in England, and then they were like, "Oh, so Black Black Brit comedians can be funny to white people? That's great. She's awesome." let's go get a younger, hotter version of her. And that basically is what happens to me every fucking time. And so that is my fear, that I've come to America and I've shown that it can be done. I've worked my ass off for 10 years building up this reputation. But I know there's, there's a load of British comics, black British comics in England watching me going, oh, shit, we can go to America too. It can be done. And they'll follow my pattern then some of them may even follow parts of my material that's been done too. And they'll come and they'll go, great. And and because they're younger, I'll be, I'm the old lady. Come on in, people. Come on in. You know what <laughs> I mean? And that's right. the fear, you know? Now,
0: to divert a little bit. Um, so it's not been just comedy that has been sort of kind of a struggle. You've dealt with some health issues as well. You yes. were diagnosed with lupus. Yes. At what age?
1: Oh, gosh. I was diagnosed in like 2006. So you weren't in America yet? No, I was living in England. Uh, I was obese at the time. Well, I struggled with my weight all my life, so I was an extremely skinny kid. Like my nickname when I was a kid was Flamingo because I had totally or, or Sri Lankan. That was another one. Sri Lankan, Sri Lankan, like the country of Sri Lanka, but Sri Lankan, like, super skinny. My I didn't ne- even know there was a, com- country. a country called Sri Lanka. Oh, Kenny. we're not, we're
0: not, we're not, we're not that smart here in America. You've
1: got to travel more, Kelly. I'm going to bring you to
0: You need to see the world. This, I do. I do. I thought about marrying an Asian. I was seeing the world. No. I thought that's what it was. You married an American Asian. <laughs> I did. I did. He don't speak a lick, a lick of, of another I mean, not, language. A, no. No, no Mandarin. Speaks, no Cantonese. He speaks English. Oh, man. Yeah. You just got quiet. Like, God damn it. <laughs>
1: Oh, man.
0: My daughter's taking French, if that matters. That's great. That's yeah, great. that is great. That is great. Yeah, that's, that's so, okay, let's get back. So you dealt with lupus. You had diagnosed in 2006 before, and you were overweight.
1: Yes, so I'd always struggled with weight, in and out of diets. I was a skinny kid. Then I discovered I started working for a bakery when I was 16. And that oh, was wow. the end of that. And I was like, oh, I can eat all this cake for free because I work here. And then that was the beginning of my health and weight struggle. So I've been fat, skinny, fat, skinny, fat, skinny all my life. Done all these diets. And 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 I have a sweet tooth, so I love sugar and all that stuff. So basically, yeah, I was quite fat in 2006. So I was, I'd say I was about 240 pounds, maybe, something like that. And I, got, I started to feel joint pain. And I'd wake up in the morning I couldn't open my eyes because my eyes had dried out and I was not producing... Tears and I went online and I was in. I, I had it sort of, I basically did all my research and I had it down to either rheumatoid arthritis or lupus. And I was actually hoping it was lupus. Really? Because rheumatoid arthritis destroys your joints, it destroys it. So I was like, lupus I could work with because at least I can, you know, hold it at bay. So I had it down. I went to a rheumatologist, long story short, diagnosed. They had me on all this medication I was on. Uh, steroids, anti-malarial tablets, uh, uh, all kinds of stuff of pain because I used to get really bad joint pain and swelling, migraines. It was a lot of pain, a lot of pain. Now, do you think that you caused, oh, I don't know. I want to say caused. I don't want to use that word. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I think I caused it.
0: Okay. Because I was wondering if that's something that can be caused. I, I truly believe with, with my MS that they say that it is a condition of the nervous system that Starts from traumatic distress at a very young age or in utero, and I, I really believe that a lot of people that get diagnosed just comes from very hard, stressful, emotional backgrounds, and it's difficult to uh, deal with that, and so it, it turns into a, a physical ailment. But I also think it's something that can be cured. Even without medication, but I haven't proven that yet, and I don't want my legs to stop working because that is something that can happen. (coughs) So it's a scary, it's a scary thing. You've gotten off medication, right? And you've changed a lot of things on your own.
1: Yes, I feel like we're being poisoned. Uh, Our food is being poisoned. We're having uh, our food genetically modified. We're having all kinds of chemicals. I mean, if you had a plate of food and got cockroach killer and sprayed it all over your food, that's basically what we're eating.
0: Oh, because of the pest pesticides.
1: You wouldn't spray cockroach killer on your food as a, as a dressing and then eat it, but that's what we're doing. So we've got a lot of chemicals in our food. Our food is being nicely put.
0: You don't think about it like that. Well,
1: exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. Like I didn't. I never thought about just taking roach killer and spraying it over my salad. Like ooh.
1: <laughs> well, exactly. And that's what we're eating. With so all you these- eat all organic, or you all eat all organic. So basically, I was on a lot of medication. I was very ill. and I was not getting any better. They had me on tons and tons of medication really and at one point it got so bad i mean it's a mixture of the food the environment the pollution definitely the food food i'd say is 80 percent of it because i if i when i go back in my timeline i think i uh, i made it worse and made it come into existence because i did the atkins diet now the atkins diet if you know it's all high protein low carb lots and lots and lots of meat yeah 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 and I lost weight on the Atkins diet. And I was like, oh, yay. And I, and I kept every time I put on weight again, I'd go back on the Atkins diet. So I was eating a ton of red meat and cheese. That's what I was living on to lose the weight. And red meat is highly acidic, highly bad for your body, as is all dairy. And that's what I was living off for years. And I think that's what helped bring on the lupus, this concentrated times of eating a high meat, highly acidic diet. I think that brought on my lupus. When I look back at it, I thought, yeah, I got diagnosed with lupus literally straight after the time span of when I was really on the Atkins diet. So I think that uh, was part of it. And just eating really badly. Um, and, I, and stress as well, because I, I got diagnosed with lupus. They gave me a steroid injection and my joint pain went away. And I was like, yay, I'm back to normal. And then I went and did some shows in Dubai and I rode one of those quad bikes. What are those bikes? The ATV things.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah. I rode one
1: of those in Dirt Dubai. bikes. Yeah, like the four-wheel. Four-wheel, wheel, yeah. yeah. Uh, I rode one of those and crashed it. had a very bad accident. Oh, no. Uh, concussion, dislocated thumb, all of that. And the stress of my body, that trauma, my lupus symptoms went from 30% to 100.
0: Wow. So where I was
1: fine up until that point, they give me a steroid injection, and the joint pain, the steroids, you know what steroids do, completely reduces the inflammation. I was like, yay, yeah, I'm back no steroid injections could reduce the pain after that accident because my wow. body just went, ah, what happened? And the lupus symptoms just went crazy. Oh, wow. So it got worse. I got super ill. They were, And you know, when you're only supposed to have these steroid injections like one five times in your life. Do you know what I mean? Because it's very high doses and steroids, if you take too many, after a while it starts to actually crumble your bones and damage you. And I had four of those injections within the first two years. And you're supposed to have five in a lifetime. So I got sicker and sicker and sicker. What then, year was this? Uh, this was like two thousand. Yeah, all around two thousand six, two thousand seven. Oh, okay, same time. Yeah, all in the first two years, and they were like, "We don't know what to do for you. Um, we think we should do chemotherapy." That's what they said to me. You need. I to- didn't even know chemotherapy was something that they yeah, were used for just lupus. They use it for cancers. They use it. Basically, it's like a reboot. It's like a hard reset on your phone.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you
1: know what I mean? They put and it blasts everything blast everything just wipes your immune system clean and that's what they do they because the chemo kills everything it doesn't just kill the cancer cells or the lupus it kills healthy stuff as well that's why it's so awful to do so basically yes it's a hard reboot um so they were like we want you to do chemotherapy and i was like i don't know about this that's a cancer treatment i don't like the idea of the chemotherapy and around that same time i'd watched a tv show Um, about some celebrities that have been taken to Thailand to do a detox where they fast for seven days and do coffee enemas every day. And at the end of it, some of them had health issues that had gone or or reduced and they'd lost a lot of weight. There was one woman who said, yes, in that one week, Kim lost 13 pounds. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm going there. And I booked a flight because that's the kind of person I am. I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm going for it. Let's do it. And I booked a flight, went out to Thailand, did that detox, also lost 13 pounds a week. And that's where I started to learn about raw food. Because while you do the detox, you're doing courses on health and how to eat alkaline diet and how food is medicine. And that's where I started How wonderful to learn. is that? Yeah. So, yeah, I started learning about raw food, how to eat an alkaline diet. Uh, I found out about, you know, blending, juicing, dehydrating, eating, living a living diet. And so I was like oh let me try this um, and basically I started doing it when I got back it took us st- I went back every year I went to Thailand every year and the first year I came back I was like yeah I'm gonna do all that and then never did it for a year and I was still sick then I went back the following year in fact I went back about two or three times before I actually decided to take it seriously um, I started doing this eat right for your blood type thing that helped me lose weight but I didn't get any better So, yeah, it was about the third detox. I was like, okay, let me do this for real. So I went and bought a Vitamix blender. I bought a juicer. They're
0: the best, aren't they? Yeah, I love the
1: Vitamix. The best blender on the market. I bought one of those. I bought a juicer. I bought a dehydrator. I bought all these things, started blending and making smoothies, and thought, let me try this raw food diet and see how that goes. Within a month of eating raw... Now, when you say raw... As in not eating any cooked foods. So a dehydrator any is Any like, white foods? Nothing cooked. Nothing heated. Oh, cooked food. Yeah, nothing heated over hundred and three degrees Fahrenheit. So the food is still alive. Once you cook it over a certain temperature, it dies. So all the temp all the vitamins, all the good stuff, the antioxidants, they all die. So a raw lifestyle is eating everything living. So you're still getting the full benefit of all the nutrients in the food. So I started doing that. And within a month, I had a raised toilet seat because my knees were so bad I couldn't sit down. Wow. I'd have to, I'd handles by the toilet so I could lower myself slowly onto the toilet because my knees and joints were so bad. You know, I... And dro- that, was, that was a result of the lupus? Or yeah, just- that was the lupus. Just the, the flare-ups were so bad. My body it was, was in inflammation the entire time. And at that point, I was living in LA. I'd already moved to LA at this point now. So I was sick the first couple of years I was in LA, the first year and a half. And not making any money. Not making any money. And then having to drag myself on flights to go back to London to do shows. And coming back with my joints swelling. It was so bad. Even when I got slim, I got really skinny at one point. I remember that. That was your special. Your HBO special, right? Weren't you? The Showtime special. I mean Showtime, I'm sorry. Yeah, I hadn't started doing raw yet. So even though the special, I'm slim, I was still ill. I still had the inflammation. Like, if you look at the way I move on that special and look at the way I move on this latest special, you see that first special, I wasn't quite as physical because I was, even though I, you know, I'd taken a bunch of steroids before the show... Wow. ...to bring down the inflammation just so I could do the show. I was constantly... So I went raw. I started eating fresh fruit, nuts, seeds vegetables just eat it raw and making and i got all these raw f- cookbooks so i can make food i didn't want to be just living off salads and juice so i was learning how to make my own chocolate make, how to make my own version of a sandwich but not using wheat you know there's lots of different diets you can uh, stuff you can eat within four weeks of changing my diet i threw out that raised toilet seat my the inflammation had gone down enough within four weeks that i could actually sit down on the toilet no hands, which was a big thing. Wow. All my symptoms went from 90% to, like, 30 in four weeks. I came off my medication. The doctor's like, you can't come off your medication. You, it will cause a shock to your body. You can get really ill and you can you could die, all this kind of stuff. And I was like, nah, I know my body. Right. I ain't doing no chemotherapy. I'm going to try this and see how this works. Because I know that I don't know where this lupus came from, but I wasn't born with this. So Mm -hmm. this is something in my environment that's causing this. So I'm gonna change my environment. I'm gonna change what I put in my body and we'll go from there. And if that doesn't work, then maybe I'll come back to you and do this chemo. But let me try this thing first. Four weeks. It took four weeks. I came off my medication. That was in 2000 I say eight or nine. Late 2008, I came off my medication. It's now 2017. I've never taken another pill for lupus since just by changing my diet.
0: Wow. That's it. You know, you read about that. You see it all the time. And, and there's, I think it's just an a, um, a attitude of habit as to why people don't, right, you yeah. know, change. It, it's like it's not it, – they say when something's bad enough, right, it'll either be so bad that you can't take it anymore. You have to change. Or it won't, and you'll just kind of stay in the pain because the pain is tolerable.
1: Or you just believe the doctors so much. Yeah, you You trust You know, we put so much faith in Western medicine. I know friends who have got lupus, and I'm like, you need to do this. Stop eating this. Stop eating that. Stop doing this, and you will get better. But they have so much faith in Western medicine, they keep going back and taking the pills and doing And the thing is, they don't know about lupus. So all these experimental treatments, I've got a friend of a friend, um, her lupus, I met her, she's married to my brother's best friend. And she got diagnosed around the same time as me. And our symptoms were on the same sort of level. And then I changed my life and I started getting better. And I kept saying to her, you need to try this. And I sat down with her for like two hours and I wrote out a list of what I'd done. I was like, stop eating this, stop doing this, drink more alkaline water. Just do, make these simple little changes to your life and you'll notice an improvement. And she she said some stupid shit to me like, oh yeah, but I love my pork chops. I'm like, okay, do you want to die for these pork chops? Right. (laughs) But yeah, she didn't listen and eight years on, She's looking at dialysis because the lupus has damaged her oh, kidneys no! eight years on. They have her on all kinds of medication. She's taking a hundred different pills a day. And some of them are interacting with others because the doctors don't know what's happening. So they'll go, oh, we've got this new drug. We don't know. It, it might help. Take that. Oh, we've got this other new drug. And they're just giving her all these new drugs. And some of them are counteracting each other, causing side effects. And then they'll give her another dr- drug to so counteract the yeah. side effects that this other... So she's on all these different drugs. She's getting sicker and sicker. Her, her kidney function, her kidneys are starting to fail. And I'm just like, oh, you know, you just can't... You, you, you can't change people's mindset. It's all about mindset. you got to... You know, look, I was living that way for years. And it took my mindset to change and go, okay, it's time. I really need to make this change. And not everybody gets to that point. Even when you're that sick and you're you're almost, you know, the mindset is still, they still believe these doctors so Mm -hmm. much that they're not willing to take that risk on themselves, invest in themselves and go, let me try something else. Let me not rely on someone else's opinion. Because that's all it is, opinion. Yeah. It's opinion. Just because they're doctors doesn't mean they know everything. Because these doctors can't explain why my lupus has been in remission for eight years, nine years. Yeah. They can't explain, oh, it's gone into, spont- that's what, they, I did a newspaper uh, interview in England in the, on the Daily Mail, which is a big newspaper in England, very right-wing, ugh, but anyway, and I talked about it, and that they, they went and asked the doctor, and the doctor was like, well, there's no evidence that her diet helped her, it may have just gone into spontaneous remission. I'm like, really? All the years that you were treating me with your drugs, it never went into spontaneous remission, though. But as soon as I changed my lifestyle, now you're talking about spontaneous remission. Mm-hmm. Doctors don't know everything.
0: Well, wow, this has been a dope ass interview. Um, I, for one, I just love talking to you because I love your accent. I've been sitting there trying to pick up on it, like, oh, I like that. <laughs> uh, aside from that, you're just very knowledgeable and you research a lot. You... I study a lot, yeah. Find out a lot of information that um, some of us are too
1: lazy to look up. Yeah, I've got to tell you how to do a proper shit. I forgot. That reminds me. Yeah, you
0: were tell me <laughs> about that. Uh, apparently, I've been shitting wrong my whole life, guys. And Gina's going to tell me how to properly shit. Yes. A proper shit. A proper shit. Um, But yeah So thank you so much For coming on here Like we have this thing Well I It's not we First of all I'm the only person That does a podcast I don't know why I always say we (laughs) Probably because I got Multiple personalities There's a bunch of bitches Inside of me (laughs) But uh, I have this thing That I'm trying to implement now Where I ask three questions At the end of a show Uh Um, Yeah So They're they're very random Um, One What is your Absolute favorite thing To do in the world if you could go and do that every day of your life what would that be? massages you would get massages? I love massages okay yeah two who is your absolute favorite person they could be living or dead it doesn't matter if you could call them up right now and talk to them for hours and hours who would that be?
1: Oh, several there's a couple though I asked you for one Oh God! <laughs> my favorite person in the world. It's between two: Nina, my girlfriend, obviously, and Lila, my best friend in the world in London.
0: Ah, oh, sweet.
1: Yeah, uh, and these are outside of my regular family, obviously. And my brother Edwin, actually, he's fun to talk to too. Oh, I know you asked for one, but there's too many. I did. I did. There's too many. Nilayed. Ed. <laughs>
0: I'll take that I'll take that (laughs) and lastly if you could go back and talk to your 16 year old self what would you tell her about life about success about this career field you've chosen what is the one thing that you would let her know
1: Uh, uh, you're gonna do be okay keep doing what you're doing keep following your dreams keep that same personality of go getter. don't give a shit I'm gonna try it and eat healthy eat healthy bitch that's it I stole that
0: question from Oprah. I like to make sure that they know that every episode, that I stole that question and I'm going to keep it, Oprah. It's mine now. <laughs> so deal with it. Um, thank you so much for thank being you. on Have Kelly Talks. Funny. Please tell them how they can find you, where they can find you.
1: Um, easy to find. GinaYashere.com. Just go to my website, www.gina, G-I-N-A-Y-A-S-H-E-R-E, GinaYashere.com. And from there, you can click on any of the buttons, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, but go to my website and sign up on my mailing list because then, when you do that, whenever I'm coming to your city, you will be the first to know because you'll get an email.
0: Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, and we're out. Kelly talks bonus episode. You welcome. I want to thank our sponsors, She Funny, a platform created to encourage funny women of color to be empowered in their funny by offering various resources and online visibility. And also our friends here at Cards Against Humanity for their hospitality and donated studio space. I appreciate you both. Sometimes.